Welcome to Marketing Week Meets the CX50 in partnership with Zone and Cognizant Digital Experience. My name is Russell Parsons, Editor-in-Chief of Marketing Week and Festival of Marketing, and I am your host. Over the past five years, Zone and Marketing Week have compiled a list of the UK's top 50 customer experience professionals, the CX50. And in this podcast series, we talk to members of this esteemed group about what puts them and their brands at the forefront of customer experience. We'll be meeting organisational leaders, brand guardians, disruptors, technologists and growth drivers, all members of this exclusive group. Joining us today is Anna Green, who, after a very career in the telecoms, charity and tech space, is now VP for brand at Gusto on a mission to, I quote, reinvent dinner time. Alongside her, Roy Capon, Head of Digital Experience for Global Growth Markets at Cognizant and Zone CEO. Welcome to you both. Hello, Russell. Thanks, Russell. Pleasure to have you both with us today. Let me begin with you, Anna. How would you describe Gusto's approach to CX? Well, at Gusto, like a lot of founder-led businesses, I think, you know, we've always deeply cared about and invested in building a strong relationship with our customers. In the really early days, Timo, who is our founder, used to hand-pack Gusto boxes and deliver them to our customers. And we used to have um, a landline in the office where people would take it in turns to answer customer calls. And I think that proximity to customers right from the early days and at the most sort of senior level of the business really changes the way that Gusto is wired and the way we think about customers. And here we are sort of 10 years on and our customers are still very much at the heart of Gusto. Our vision is to become the UK's most loved way to eat dinner. And with that, you know, one of our key North Star metrics is our net promoter score, which currently is kind of in the high 60s and 70s. By comparison, traditional grocery averages an NPS of sort of in and around 25. And if you actually think about it, it's probably it's not that surprising because the whole notion of a recipe box is about reimagining the end to end customer experience of dinner times. It takes something that was previously a bit routine, quite mundane, and sort of elevates every touch point. How has CX helped you differentiate? I guess one of the biggest points of difference for Gusto is whilst our competitors have internationalised with a much simpler product, we've made the decision to stay focused in the UK. So we've gone much deeper into serving the needs of customers, creating a really personalised experience, which then makes it much harder to compete. So now Gusto offers the broadest range of recipes at the best price with the best customer service. And I think, you know, when you talk about the importance of CX, I think that's often shown in the strategic decisions and investments that you make. It's as much about the things that you don't do as the things that you prioritise. So for me, that's one of the best examples. Thanks for that. So a bit to unpack there. Firstly, just to comment on the... uh, the uh, the NPS there, 6070 is extraordinary, isn't it? For, well, anywhere, in any category, in any sector. Yeah, I mean, it's much more akin to, you know, we look at the likes of Apple, Spotify, like lifestyle brands, Netflix, that's kind of our comparators. And it really kind of pushes the ambition of the company in terms of what could be the next level experience for food. Thanks. I mean, In terms of what you were saying there about your differentiation, you are operating in a very competitive space, an increasingly 
competitive space. If I understood you correctly, you were saying focus, particularly geographical focus, is the thing that helps you differentiate. How does that manifest itself in the experience that you offer against some of those direct competitors in the UK? Well, I think what it's allowed us to do is invest a lot more in the technology and the operation, which fuels kind of a superior proposition. So at the back end of what we offer is a lot of investment in data and AI. And that from a operational perspective allows us to scale the number of recipes that we can offer customers. So through our factories, we're able to optimize the pick and packing of our boxes, a bit like a sat-nav where everything is rooted in the most optimal way. So rather than a traditional pick and pack where you can only offer a certain amount of recipes before it becomes quite labor intensive, we're able to scale that much more effectively. And then on a customer side, that then translates into the recommendations engine that underpins those ranges. So we're able to make recommendations based on what people have bought before, what kind of their food preferences are, you know, what cuisines they're into. And so much like Spotify, everything is built off the back of this sort of personalization engine that gets smarter with time. And it's it's those components that have really kind of taken the core proposition and, and elevated it and created an experience that just gets better with time the more that you, you use us. And maybe the answer to this question is contained somewhere in what you just said there. But through your research, through your the insight that you've gleaned from that research, what one thing would you say does it boil down to in terms of what you do that others don't, that matters to people? I think, I mean, ultimately we talk about the product differentiation being around choice and and meaningful choice. So, you know, food is incredibly personal and what we're offering here is the ability to tailor your weekly meals based around your dietary needs and preferences. I think on a more emotional level, it is that sort of nudging into the slightly more unexpected. So pushing you to try something different. So when we speak to customers, they'll often say, you know, before I was with Gusto, you know, I'd eat the same things on repeat. Now I'm trying new techniques, trying new flavors. And I think it is that pairing of, you know, something that's very practically helpful in terms of planning out meals and something that actually adds a lot of richness to your weekly routine that really sort of creates this incredible experience that, you know, is, is really hard to match. Thank you. I mean, one thing I would say from personal experience of Gusto is the menus. The menus I have a folder of and I continually return to those. I mean, is that part of your customer journey planning that people will use your subscription service and regularly, but will continue to have that relationship when they're not actively ordering new meals on a weekly basis? Gusto is always top of mind for me because I'm always opening up this folder of recipes and the next time I do decide to partake in recipe boxes then I guess Gusto will be top of my mind. Yeah I mean it's the recipe folders are just literally one of the most loved things from our customers and having that treasure trove of I can things. attest to this. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
and and actually I think there's just something really wonderful in the generosity of making the recipes available both online and through the recipe cards I think we do have some people that go off and make the meals of their own accord but more often than not what we find is that people continue to come back because it's actually much more cost effective to buy all those ingredients when they're all pre-proportioned and there's zero waste so um yeah it, it kind of works in in both of those ways yeah the number of different varieties of um, of wine uh, sorry wine i'll <laughs> rephrase that vinegar wine-based vinegar that i've bought in order to recreate those gusto recipes anyway this is less about me um and certainly not about but my uh vinegar <laughs> education of wine that I drink. <laughs> indeed indeed um you're uh, responsible for brand, as uh, as your job title suggests. Uh, how do you join the dots or make sure that the dots are aligned between brand, uh, which often comes to life, say, through advertising and the customer experience? You appear across all sorts of different touch points. How do you make sure they're all joined up? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I often hear brand and customer experience used interchangeably, whereas in my mind, brand is about setting that tone and expectation, as you said, through communications, and it builds an emotional connection with the audience, whereas customer experience is the thing that ultimately builds trust. And so notionally, they're quite similar, but they're two parts of the same whole. I think it's really important if you can get the business to understand that relationship between brand and CX. It's always a helpful place to start. I think on a more practical level, you have to bring your brand and product teams closer together. Having a product team involved in any brand work and vice versa, just make sure there's this fluency between sort of the digital and offline experience. At Gusto, we've started to establish customer experience principles, which guide our design thinking. And we've also set up a copywriters club where we get everyone feeling much more confident about writing for the brand. So it's two very practical things that we've done. But I think what in turn that has created is a shared sense of ownership around the brand, people feeling much closer to what it is, how it manifests. And therefore, managing consistency across the customer experience becomes a much more sort of shared ambition. It's kind of like a much more democratic approach to branding than, you know, the good old days. But when you can get it right, it's really, really powerful. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting what you were saying there to make sure that you eradicate silos because they do exist and they still exist in a lot of organizations particularly larger ones i suppose it's a bit easy for you because you are a growing business i'm assuming when you are all in the office then you all sit reasonably close to each other or in regular content uh, contact even but you've worked for larger organizations where i assume you've seen the flip side you've seen where it can become siloed and one set of people can be working on one thing and be oblivious perhaps to the the North Star, the the shared principle, Mm -hmm. the shared objectives that you talked about. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely um, experienced, as you say, both sides of the spectrum. I think my reflection, having, having gone through both, is having a unifying purpose and uh, you know focus on the customer through a really mature insights function the way that your user research function works across the org is really kind of like a key foundation to be able to drive customer experience consistently across the org 
I think that culture really is is also very important. You know, how much you're driving the narrative around customer focus from the very top. And I think if you get that right, and you know, structure, we can talk a little bit more on how Gusto does it. But I think that structurally bringing cross-functional teams together to solve different parts of the customer experience um, can also be a key enabler to driving customer focus as you scale. Yeah. Oh, well, now you've brought it up, let's uh, let's continue on that line before I bring Roy in. Is uh, waiting patiently, but just uh, let me just ask you to clarify there, Anna, what you mean by structure? How does that work in service of better customer experience? Well, if, a few years ago, we moved to a tribe operating model, so this will be quite familiar from other tech businesses. But you know, we started by bringing our tech teams and marketing together, and very much at sort of the top end of the funnel, so the sign up journey, and getting them to work together to problem solve for the customer and make sure that you know, the right information was presented, that the customer journey was effortless, and that proved so fruitful that we've then kind of expanded that out so we now have um, a tribe set up across each part of the customer journey where we bring together you know not just tech and marketing but insights user research the projects team operational teams where it makes sense to do so um, and they're, they're they have like a unified task to really answer the kind of the customer problem at that point in the journey and that's been a huge unlock for us because it's kind of like mini mini companies within a company and it gives them the autonomy and skill set to be able to drive speedy change stay really close to the customer problems at that point in the journey and then like the laddered up view and that's where brand comes in is ensuring that there's kind of consistency and a and a sort of unified experience across the board I've seen uh, or I've heard this uh, referred to as scrums yeah. previously, but I think they work using the same principle and something that definitely became more prevalent in larger organisations during COVID, during lockdown, when people were forced to think and act differently, definitely taking their cues from smaller, younger companies. Roy, if I could bring you in to the conversation on this very point, I mean, why is CX important in particular in scale-ups and, and what advantages perhaps do those smaller, younger companies have when it comes to delivering superior experience? Yeah, I think, um, well, Anna's mentioned a few, I think. I think it's that ability to stay close to the customer and the voice of the customer, understanding of the customer. And if you can bake that in from the get-go, there's a sort of foundation of the business and you continue to drive that kind of ethos or culture through the business as it grows, I think that's an important trait we see a lot in the, in the scale-ups. You know, arguably... A lot of these businesses were kind of invented, for want of a better language, or, or were founded to purposely be disruptors to the larger scale kind of enterprises that were potentially failing in key areas of that sort of journey. I think some of the challenges Anna's got in terms of, you know, with scale up businesses is I think there's always in a customer assumption I think almost kind of it's slightly unfairly so, but also fairly so that, um, you know, these relatively newer businesses their customer experience should be great. And I don't know if you've ever had a poor customer experience in a small business. It's, it's like a double whammy of disappointment. You're like, why? I mean, you're sort of like going, why isn't this better? It could be so much better. So I think, um, 
you know, I think <clears throat> customers are very tuned to that, I think. And they're smart enough to know that if you are a small scaling business or as you go, that you should be more in control of the journey and you should be able to reflect that that control, that ability to change in a better overall experience. So I think that's the advantage. They should be able to be small. I think, you know, Anna's describing even through the organisational structure, you know, this notion of tribes that you've got allows them to think in sort of, you know, smaller pockets of it, but that allows them to be sort of more nimble to your thing around scrums, you know, that terrible word, agile ways of working, but, you know, kind of the most misused word probably in the world. But, you know, the principles of that are, you know, to be able to be nimble, to be able to small, to be able to have those teams working autonomously to solve customer problems. I think that's, you know, kind of um, what you see in these businesses. Um, and I think that ability then to kind of know where you're wrong and, you know, with that feedback loop with a the customer, then to be able to say, you know what, we got this wrong, so we can we can change. And we can change a process or we can change a policy or procedure, whatever it might be. And actually we can instigate that change at speed. I think that's where the the larger scale businesses have real challenges is that they may be able to invest in the change and you know modernize their technologies or whatever make it kind of more seamless but the real challenge that underpins it is the ability to actually make the change in the organization and to have any change adopted and processes change and behavioral change so i mean they are bigger problems inside larger businesses for sure Mm, absolutely. I mean, lots of people have adopted, to your point, the word agile over the years. But as somebody said to me a couple of years ago, agile used to just mean working really bloody hard um, uh, within the confines of your working week. Whereas now, certainly through things like tribes and scrums, it's become more of a methodology, a way of doing things as opposed to an adjective to describe, as I say, how hard you work. <laughs> Um, for no particular reward. Um, just continuing on a couple of things Anna said, uh, Roy, this uh, this sense of having a, a shared sense of ownership and the cultural importance uh, or, or why culture is important to delivering better customer experience. Uh, we've talked before about the importance of employee experience. Uh, please share for everybody listening what that means uh, and why it's of value. Well, you know, I'm quite passionate on this topic, Russell. And I think what continues to fascinate me, I think, and not to start too much on a, on a negative, and this is definitely not Anna's business, this tends to be big business, is that we know and we've seen that companies continue to underinvest in the employee experience, albeit millions of studies show that great customer experience comes from great employee experience. I mean, there's, you know, you could name, I could name at least 10 studies that kind of show you that. Um, you know, we've done one with Forrester, as you know, global study with Forrester, where they said, you know, about 60% of the executives report that their CX success is kind of hindered by not investing enough in employee experience. And if you then look at the companies who do invest in it, they're four times more profitable. So you sort of got to, you say, it's, you know, it's a real crux of businesses, I've, I've unfortunately seem to be failing to understand that actually to properly realise their customer experience ambitions, they must first focus on the employee experience to get that. And I, and I think that is that comes down to, you know, those core things that Anna said, a very clear uh, sort of focus on the culture and the mindset, the vision, the North Star and how that's articulated. I think it's then kind of the methods that you enable that. So what are the policies or procedures you're putting in place to, to better reflect that? 
And then, you know, more broadly, how is that measured in the organisation and how is success measured? I think there's, you know, the sort of classic sort of, better description, poster child of, of great EX or, or employee experience, I think, is, you know, someone like John Lewis. Now, it's a partnership-based business, right? So it's an employee-owned one at its heart. So it starts off from a very different place than, than most organisations. But, you know, it has a really clear set of articulated visions and values and then they reflect this through having the right policies you know so recently they introduced a what 26 week for equal parental pay and leave it offers two weeks paid leave and access to the partnerships free counseling services for mental health if anybody suffered pregnancy loss all jobs are offered with being flexible first you know the organization is launching a campaign around busting taboos around menopause you know what i mean all of those are intrinsic to its values and they're really driving that through the organization through having the right policies and the procedures to sort of enable that and if we are to buy the great resignation and the fact that people are more proactively looking to leave and are reassessing their own careers and thinking very carefully about the values and the support that their organisation and company offers, then all of this becomes a lot more important. Uh, Given some of the things that you were talking about earlier, Anna, you would attest to the value of employee experience and creating customer advocates amongst your own staff. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. As as Roy describes, I, I don't think you can look after customers and not see the same merit internally. You know, if, if you can't show care for your employees, then you can't expect them to show care and consideration for your customers. And I think, you know, the risk always as a company scales is that the process starts to get in the way of people. You know, it starts to create disconnection with your customers and with one another. And, you know, culture we've talked about, but I think, you know, at Gusta, we've got such a strong culture that's been embedded right from the beginning. So we have ownership principles which guide the behaviours of the company, dream, deliver and care. And care's all about how we collaborate and problem solve for the customer. So it, it is very much those two lenses of how we work together, respect one another and create an inclusive environment, but also how we do work that has a positive impact on the environment and, and on you know people's health. And I think that driver is just really, you know, ensures that we're attracting people that are wanting to do great stuff and create amazing experience. It's not by accident. It's absolutely by design. And I think when you come into the company, it's just felt straight away that people are, I think, geared from a different place. They're coming to work because they've got that desire to make a positive impact. And I think that purpose-driven organisations does unlock a different motivation. It attracts different people and it attracts a different kind of work. And then advocacy. I mean, most of our team, I think, if not all, are Gusto customers. And, you know, I absolutely believe in experiencing the product firsthand. And I think Gusto employees are our biggest champions, but also our biggest critics. And I think it's really important that you are always using the product, you know, yourself as well as kind of competitors experience and capturing feedback, ways to improve and making those feedback loops a really big part of your product innovation. So yeah, culture and and sort of looking after your employees, I think is, is foundational. Was the uh, the dream deliver and care, just to clarify, you were talking about purpose uh, at Gusto. I mean, purpose can mean lots of things to lots of different people. Is that what you were referring to, uh, having a shared sense of, 
ownership and direction and it's found within that dream deliver and care yeah i mean we talk about creating products that have a positive impact on people and the planet and dream deliver and care are, are like our values our ownership principles that really um we use them to recruit so it's very much kind of what's the employee behaviors that we want people to role model we use them in kind of performance reviews promotions so there's definitely a a sort of archetype of somebody that would be very successful at gusto and and customer centricity is is really central to that absolutely um roy mentioned there are various ways to measure success i just want to focus on one of them perhaps the most important one at Gusto. I mean, how do you link, you talked about the very high levels of uh, MPS score, how do you link that to commercial Mm. outcomes? Yeah, I mean, we have actually established, as you might expect, a really strong correlation between NPS and customer advocacy, refer a friend. So over 40% of Gusto customers join through our refer a friend programme, which is extraordinary and we also know that word of mouth is obviously much greater than that and we'd love to and have tried to go a step further and say you know if we make x improvement in the customer experience will it drive this many more referrals or this much more retention but sometimes it's hard to get it to that concrete number you can definitely see directional trends and i guess kind of my conclusion from that would be is we have to kind of get comfort in there is a linkage there, but you can't prove out, particularly if it's a more subtle customer experience change that you're creating, particularly in the world of digital, where it's like a lot of UX amendments, that it's always going to come through and in that way, in that quantified way. So as much as I'd encourage people to try and find those trends, also be really clear on what your vision is. So what's the customer problems you're trying to solve for? What's the experience you're trying to build? And what are the stepping stones to get you there? I understand what you were saying there about being, I suppose, careful not to be absolute. But I'm guessing when you are going to your chief finance officer or whoever it is you're signing off uh, the budgets, you need to demonstrate that if we do this, or invest this to improve the customer experience, then it will lead to X, Y, Z outcomes. So it is important to demonstrate what good looks like in terms of business outcomes. Would you agree? Absolutely. I think the the point I'm trying to make is particularly when you're working, you know, across a really complicated customer experience is that you need to keep an eye on the sum of the parts. So you can be making all of these sort of minutia changes and it's only at a certain inflection point where those changes come together and it feels more substantive that you'll get that customer response. And I think we see this a lot in the menu design where we are increasing the number of recipes, we're changing the way that people browse the menu. The individual changes might be hard to quantify, but when they all kind of ladder up to improve recommendations as I sort of mentioned earlier and when it starts to really kind of kick in and customers start to see that value of the recommendations engine that's when you'll start to see that shift into more kind of from consumer into business outcomes. Roy on this point what should good look like in terms of understanding CX success? Yeah I think it's it's about understanding that not all parts of the journey not all all the experiences are sort of kind of created equal and there are real 
moments in the journey that will have a much more compounded impact on things like NPS or revenues or loyalty. And I think you see that in the insurance category, for example, quite a dull subject, I know, not as interesting as uh, food. Um, but, you know, you've, you see in this insurance category that, you know, the most important part in, in that journey is, the, is your first claim. So if your first claim experience is a straightforward one, a transparent one, and you get the payout, that has a massive effect on satisfaction, MPS, and ultimately retention, right? They, they, they're just such a fundamental. So if you can get that right in the insurance category, you know, your MPS is going to go off the scales. It's similar in the um, car buying experience, right? If you can get the test drive experience and your visit to the dealer, because they only go there once now pretty much to a dealership and won't go to two, but that's it. If you can get that right, the compounded effect that it has on their net sales obviously goes through the roof. If you get it wrong, then you have the totally opposite effect. So I think it's about understanding like, you know, don't bore the ocean, really start to understand, you know, the, the parts of the journey that have a much greater effect on the outcomes that you want and just focus down on those because otherwise you can end up, like I say, boiling the total ocean. Mm. And focus key, obviously, but also understanding that nothing happens in a vacuum. If you pull on one lever, then there is an impact later on. Is yeah. what I'm taking anyway from what you were saying there. Roy, we've, uh, we hear a lot about how expectations are getting higher and higher and customers are becoming more demanding. I mean, what changes do you expect to see in customer expectations in the medium term and how should brands adapt? I think the only expected change is continued acceleration of change and with heightened experiences. Uh, I think we've unfortunately, I hate using, you know, going back to the pandemic, but you know, yeah, you don't, you, you've seen it, you know, it's just totally changed every, the way we work, shop, socialise, exercise and live every day. And so that acceleration of change that happened in those instances is going at an even faster rate. And I think the big gap that businesses have got is actually how can they keep up with that so you see this ever shifting and elevated set of expectations and the business challenge is actually how do I continually kind of keep up and deliver on those better experiences and so I think it's forced businesses you know we spoke about this a minute ago right so agile scrums tried whatever you want to call it it's forced businesses to be able to respond quicker so you need to have a much better understanding of what's happening you know what are the insights that are happening you've got to bake that in then it's actually how do you actually change the ways of working depending on what's what you're seeing what you're listening out there and actually how you focus in the the business as we've just spoke about on you know making sure you're prioritizing the stuff that is going to make the right difference is going to be tangible and it's going to have a success so you know i think that's reflected itself in every single business so how do they stay continue to stay close to the customer understand those expectations and respond to them in time that's actually going to have an actual sort of impact so you know, I think we've seen continued views of and focus of, of investments, right? So rather than, you know, kind of, but nobody's got a bottomless pit of money, we all often wish that we do have, but it's actually much more controlled kind of investment choices we're seeing in businesses. That does require, you know, that different operating model as well, right? And again, and I mentioned this right at the front, it's around 
how can you make the business collaborate better collectively? So actually, how do you create the right kind of connections in the business that has that full view of the customer? Because nobody ever has this, this, you know, that single or narrow view of the customer. It's, it's, it's scattered into the winds of the organization. So actually, how do you make sure that there is that kind of total view that people are collaborating and they're doing that in as you know as quickly and as smart as they they can really um, and that's not none of that's going to slow down it's only ever going to get quicker unfortunately for all the businesses out there i mean how are you um looking to this is a, a hoary old cliche and but future proof i'm not sure if it's actually uh, possible but what steps are you taking to make sure you can stay across evolving needs presumably recognizing that they are ever evolving and changing at a reasonable pace yeah i mean i think great cx doesn't just come from customer focus i think every business would say they they want to be customer focused it really moves beyond that it's about that sort of deep curiosity in people Often what we're doing more from an innovation space is looking at some of the macro trends around health, convenience, sustainability, the sort of 10, 20 year view, because Gusto really is at the intersection of some of that. So Gusto in the future, what it could do in terms of preventative health, you know, the convenience of planning all your weekly meals and how that then combines into, you know, at family routines when people are ever more pushed for time, as well as on a shorter lens, you know, some of the challenges around um, the cost of living crisis and actually the need to be able to kind of budget for your household and assurance that you get from knowing what the cost of what you're eating is and that there's no waste at the end of it and that, that therefore leaving a positive impact. So I think it's it's always having that that lens and ensuring that somewhere in your business you've got people that are really deeply thinking about what is the future of this business and how do we kind of keep people stepping away from the day job and looking at the questions of like, how can we ride some of those trends? You know, how can we push the ambition of the business beyond where we are today? And in order to get that really carefully managing the focus on commercial and customer outcomes, um, because too much focus on the short-term metrics oftentimes will stop you innovating for the future. So making sure that you're building those capabilities out, particularly for tech-led businesses, that will facilitate some of those longer-term customer experience changes. Research, insight, and a view on the long-term sounds almost uh, dangerously straightforward and common-sense thinking. It'll never catch on. Uh, Anna, you just mentioned uh, the cost-of-living crisis, which is obviously a huge priority for all marketers all brands this year and sadly probably into next year as well just elaborate a little bit for me would you in terms of the way that you are reflecting this kind of turbulence in terms of what gusto is doing how it's helping how it's communicating with your customers Mm -hmm. i think oftentimes when we have these you know difficult times with customers as brands over rely on communication as the lever to manage through. And I think particularly after the pandemic, I think the sort of we're all in it together language has lost a little bit of its shine. So yes, empathy in communications is important. It always will be, but it's definitely not the solution. And I think every business or every brand owner needs to be looking at what they're offering and thinking quite deeply about whether it is catering to the needs of audiences within a cost of living crisis. 
And so second to that, I think it's an important uh, differentiation is that we need to shift the conversation away from just a focus on price to a focus on value. How can you maximize the value that you're offering to customers? And the best example for Gusto is we've recently launched the ability to add five recipes to your box. And yes, that is about expanding the offer and making it more habitual for customers. But again, it's also in response to customers wanting to know how much they're spending on their weekly meals. And so actually just that simple addition makes it much easier for people to compartmentalize, whether it's their Monday to Friday or whatever their routine is. That's kind of my outgoings for the week. And here's the sort of fixed price that I'm signing up to. And I think that's the point on value rather than price. You know, that offer comes all kind of set and ready and everything that you need for the week. So I think there's an example of, you know, it isn't just about cost cutting. It is actually about thinking how you can weave into the into the routines of your customers. Yeah, I mean, same question for you or similar subject, Roy. I mean, with inflation at a 40 year high, as I say, it's um, it's going to be an issue that all brands face. But how does customer experience help differentiate when customers are going to be faced with choices? Do they take or use this brand or service or the other? They're going to be many people are going to be forced with that. So what can brands do in terms of CX to help be the choice when people are faced with one? I think it's interesting, right? Because there's going to be fewer or less frequent purchasing decisions, full stop, right? Because people are are money strapped, so they're going to make different types of choices. And I think when they're going to have to make different types of choices with a different level of scrutiny, I think it's really important that, I think some of the stuff that Anna was talking to, it requires a greater transparency about what you're getting and the pricing of that and what that actually means. And so it's just not a value for money statement, but more of a visibility in terms of, you know, why is it costing me this way? And why is it priced like that? I don't know if you know the, the eyewear brand Palette. Do you know the P- Palette? No. I think that, you know, they, they're very smart, right? Their proposition is producing a, a pair of glasses costs less than £10 per pair. So why why do you pay 500 Which Which kills me, right? Because, you know, I don't even... <laughs> Quite my my eyewear um, fascinations. Anyway, but it's it's a ve- that's a very strong value proposition, and it offers them you know customers I think of real clarity on why their frames start at around a fiver, and they're really clear about that. It's because they go direct to source and they cut out everything else in between. And so I think brands that are starting to operate in that really transparent, really sort of you know kind of um, space and how they price for the customers become more valuable. I also think there's a very interesting potential as well here, which is around actually an opportunity that brands can take for a sort of slightly higher purpose. And I think there is a role for businesses to create the right change, just not for vulnerable people, the sick and the old, but also for vulnerable people in lower income groups. And I think one great output of great CX is around, you know, should be around creating, or one of the actions can be around creating greater efficiencies that help to drive down costs in organisation. And so we, you know, there's plenty of stuff that we do for organisations to drive down costs, right? Self-service tools, you know, creating more intuitive journeys. So there's less need for guidance. So there's less demand on contact centres or being able to do stuff yourself. And I think the next iteration of this could be actually not just the business taking on that saving, but passing that saving back to the customer. And there's a real transparency. And actually, you know what? We've created this and we've driven down the cost in our business and you've helped us do that. Hence, I'm going to give you 
the money back in the pricing of that. And I think we're starting to see a bit of this kind of, you know, it's almost like this kind of sustainable ecosystem. You know, the more efficient you help us to be, the more we can give back. And I think we're starting to see this a little bit in data. You know, we've seen it actually that, you know, people are empowered now to give their data and people are paying, you know, and companies are paying for that data because there's that level of transparency. So I think we're going to see, you know, slight nuances in that actually where greater transparency around pricing, greater returns back to the actual customer through lower pricing because the businesses have created, you know, kind of a more efficient way to, to serve people. And that's a, and that's a sort of quid quo pro value for everyone sort of um, area to explore. I mean, it would definitely be a, a point of difference. Uh, the utopia that you described around data is interesting as well. I mean, I've heard about this value exchange and the need for a greater value exchange for many years. I think some brands have got it right, but uh, the majority are still in pursuit of it. Uh, but what you were saying there is really interesting. I mean, talking about experience as being more than just speed and convenience but moving towards, yes, value, as Anna talked about, but also the efficiencies that you spoke of that brands might be able to offer is really interesting. Now, by way of conclusion, I'm just going to ask one more question of both of you. For everybody listening, what have you learned that works uh, in your careers to date that you advise others to do? Something straightforward that you've just learned that is of benefit or has proven to be of benefit uh, that you would like to pass on as a little nugget of advice. Anna, let me begin with you. So I think mine would be be where your customers are. You know, there's there's kind of a very widely uh, established, you know, view that you should join your customer care teams or walk the shop floor. But I'd actually push it further than that and say, you know, if you're in the business of food as we are, I want you to deeply understand how customers are buying their weekly shop, their food habits, the restaurants they're going to. So it's it's much more cultural than it is just within the sort of closed sphere of what your business is doing. And if I push that further, I guess like the the single best piece of advice I could give you is whenever you're designing something for customers, if it's a new product or a brand or, you know, a solution is go and sit in a motorway service station. Bear with me. Bear with me on this one. But I swear this, I was told this when I was maybe 22. And I just think it's honestly the best piece of advice because that's where you get the broadest cross section of the UK. And I think oftentimes we're in these kind of closed walls with a view, you know, in a London office somewhere. And it's very closed minded. So if you can kind of just broaden that lens and if your idea still makes sense after the service station test, then you know you're onto a winner. I've not heard that one before, but I think the sentiment of what you were saying, I absolutely 100% agree with. I think if all marketers just realise that they're not their customer, uh, that they generally sit in a rarefied metropolitan elite or something close to it, even if in their countryside, then the better, because there's a lot of talk about customer centricity, but little desire to actually be close and you're describing being very close to your actual customers. Uh, Roy, final word for you. 
Well, it's, it's yeah, very, very similar to Anna, I think, which is about, you know, kind of keep on listening and understanding and, yeah, literally go out and be with them and understand everything in context. But the real point for me, I think, that, and, and the last one is what we spoke about earlier. I think it's, it's a realisation that we've been looking at sort of customer experience through the sort of wrong end of the telescope. And we've got to turn it around and look at our employees first, make sure that we're building great experiences for our employees, the right levels of engagement, and that will pay dividends back into the organisation. And I think there should be more focus on that from every single business. Hmm. Look inward before you look outward, uh, serve your internal customers as much as you do, and that will indeed lead to better service of external customers. Uh, So thank you very much for that, and thank you for your uh, almost anthropological, uh, if I've said that word right, uh, tip, uh, Anna. The two words that I've underlined quite a few times that uh, you both mentioned uh, are focus and prioritise, which I think is key to understanding the pursuit and delivery of better customer outcomes. I think in marketing, in business generally, uh, we've been chasing a lot of the shiny new things and by focusing on some of the basics that you both just talked about there and prioritising those better outcomes will hopefully be forthcoming. Thank you very much to both of you. Thank you to Anna and Roy. And thank you to everybody for listening. Until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to Marketing Week Meets the CX50 in partnership with Zone and Cognizant Digital Experience with me, Russell Parsons. This podcast was produced by Tim O'Donoghue at Bauer London Creative. Look out for previous episodes on marketingweek.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and SoundCloud. Until next time, goodbye.